Well, good morning. I'm excited to be with you guys today, grateful for the opportunity that the Lord has provided us to gather together as the family of God to talk about the Word of God and worship our Creator. Um, if the ushers can come forward now, we're going to pass, pass out the connection cards. Um, for those of you who are new for us, uh, please put um, contact info and things like that. There's a gray box on there. Um, and I also, every time I'm up here, I just love to draw attention to the prayer requests at the bottom of this sheet. Uh, I love those. I cherish reading those. It's an opportunity for us as leadership to be in prayer for you um, and to be with you and alongside of you in the things that God has called you to uh, just over the next week. And so whatever things are worrying you, whatever things are bothering you, or maybe things that are, you just want to celebrate. You see God at work in your life, and you want us to celebrate those things with you. Just put them in that prayer request section, and we would love to be in prayer with you in that way. Um, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Acts 15. Uh, and before we get into the message, I just have two announcements I want to say real quick. The next Discover Crosspoint is going to be uh, next Sunday. Uh, that's February 11th. If you're new around here and would like to get a greater picture as to what life around Crosspoint looks like, uh, this will be a wonderful opportunity for you to learn more of that. You can sign up for Discover Crosspoint next Sunday back at Guest Connections after the service. Um, also, there are two community groups starting this week um, specifically geared toward women. Uh, they will be studying a book by uh, Jen Wilkin called Women of the Word. Uh, one will be happening on Thursday evenings and it will be led by Pam Tongbakken. Uh, and the other will be happening on, happening on Friday mornings, and Kelly Cooper will be leading that time. I want to encourage uh, younger women and even hype students, get involved in this. If, 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 uh, if you want to dig deeper in your faith, if you want the opportunity to be encouraged, challenged by women um, who are also following Jesus who are here, this is so valuable. Um, the, the reward and the benefit of getting involved in a community group um, period, is, is uh, by far worth your time. And so um, I, I just want to encourage you women uh, to get involved in this. It's, it's a wonderful opportunity for you to get to know one another, but also uh, to grow in your intimacy with Christ together. So if you're interested in either of those community groups, you can also uh, sign up for those at the back at Guest Connections after service. Well, I want to pray, um, and then we're going we're gonna to get into this sweet, sweet book. Lord, thank you. Um, Thank you for your word, the wisdom that is there. God, you are not obligated to reveal yourself to us, and yet you have. You've chosen to lay before us explicit details of redemption, explicit details on how we can have access to you, explicit details as to how we can grow in intimacy and in knowledge of you, our creator. And so for that, we worship you this morning. Open our eyes to see what is here for us today. And Lord, may we respond in joy and in obedience to what you're calling us to by your spirit and for your glory. Amen. We have a lot that we're going to talk about today. Um, and I'm going to move this candle because it makes me nervous. Um, it smells amazing, but I just like to move, and I got a lot of stuff here. So um, we have a lot that we're going to cover today. I have nine things I want to tell you. Nine. That's a ton. And for you, the listener, I promise that there is grace for you. I do not want you, and my goal during this time is not for you to get every little piece of information that I have to say to you. It's not the goal. 
It's not the goal. And I, and I pray as I try to communicate these nine things with clarity that you would give me grace as well. Um, what, I, what I want to do during this time, I, I, I do, the reason why I have nine things to say is, is because by design, I, I do want to overwhelm you a little bit. Each of the nine things that I'm going to talk to you about this morning are the benefits that we are able to have, the benefits that we receive as we pursue a robust understanding of Christ. And you're going to hear me use that phrase over and over again today, a robust understanding of Christ. And what I mean by, by, by robust is this, full, complete, growing a full understanding of Christ, the details of Jesus and redemption. I, I, I truly believe that many of us, um, myself included, are tempted to settle for vague general descriptions of the faith, a vague understanding about redemption. And so I want to ask you this morning, what level is your hunger to learn more about Christ? To what degree do you hunger and yearn to know more about Jesus and how he is at work in the world? Are you satisfied with a vague understanding of Jesus and what he's done, or do you want more? Do you settle for broad brushstrokes of truth, or do you really want to dig into the details of redemption and all that God communicates to us in those details? Scripture says that we, as the church, are the bride of Christ. And one of the amazing things about this is back in Genesis 1, when God created man and woman and he instituted marriage, God created marriage. Therefore, God determines what marriage is and everything that, that uh, is at play in marriage. But God designed marriage specifically in the beginning of the world to point to Jesus. That is the mystery of marriage, that in, in marriage we see with greater detail how we are to relate with Christ as his bride. And so I want to ask you, like, what would it say of my love for my wife if I just settled for like a vague general understanding for who she is? Like if I was satisfied with knowing my wife through information that I could see on her Facebook feed rather than actually getting to know the intimate details of who she is, what would that say of my love for her? if I was satisfied with general, vague details? How would I grow closer with her if I just knew these general, vague details, right? There would be, there would be no motivation for, for our intimacy to increase if I just like checked up on her Facebook feed or had this Facebook knowledge of her and who she was. As, as her husband, as her spouse, there's this longing in me to have a deeper understanding for the intricacies of who she is. I want to know her with intimacy. And I want her to know me with intimacy. Why would I settle for anything less than a robust view of my wife? In the same way, why do we settle for less with a robust understanding of Christ? Why do, we, why do we just say to ourselves that, that Jesus is enough? I don't, I don't need the details. I don't, I don't need theology, right? We, we get very afraid of the word theology. We don't, I don't need that. I don't need the details. I have Jesus. That's, that's good enough for me. And so today I do want to overwhelm you with nine reasons why the details matter. Not just his, not just his head knowledge, Right? Not just facts that we're supposed to believe and attain to, but, but deep truths that impact our everyday way of life. 
deep truths that impact the way we see others, the way we see God at work, and the way we approach the aspects of redemption and how they're carried out in our lives. And so in Acts 15, we see something very challenging to the believers. In Acts 15, we see false teaching really hit and take root in the church. You see, these Jews came from Judea and they began to say, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And we're going to get into the details as to what's wrong with that today. But I want us to start in verse 1, looking at this. We're having some technical difficulties. We're going to be going through like 35 verses, so open your Bibles. Get with me in the Word. We're going to start in verse 1. Um, in the first three verses here today. And I want you to begin seeing the benefits of what a robust understanding of Christ and all that entails, how that helps us as believers. Let's start, verse one. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument, and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. So false teaching has hit the scene, and the first thing that this text exposes to us is that a robust understanding of Jesus keeps us from being easily deceived. It keeps us from being easily deceived. Before we get into why this is an issue, before we get into why circumcision is a problem and requiring that for salvation is an issue and how the scriptures don't affirm that, we have to see how Paul and Barnabas passionately disagree with what these men have to say. Immediately, verse 1 tells you what they're saying. Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. And then it immediately says right after that that Paul and Barnabas engaged them in serious argument and debate. Now what I love about this is they did not just passively like ignore this teaching. And the reason why is because false teaching in the church is like cancer. It spreads and eats away at the integrity of the local body. It eats away of our corporate view of God as a family. It eats away at our intimacy with the gospel. And so we see here um, the twisting of Scripture, right? At, the, at, at first glance, many of, of the disciples might have heard this and thought like, oh, well, maybe they're on to something. Maybe, maybe we do need circumcision, to be saved. And the, and the reason why is because Leviticus 12.3 commands circumcision for all of God's people. So like, well, the scriptures say we must be circumcised in Leviticus, so, so that must be the case. And you see, Paul and Barnabas, out of their robust understanding of Christ and his work, it helps them not be deceived by this lie because they know why circumcision was required. You see, God required circumcision for the Israelites in the Old Testament as a seal of the promises to come, as a guarantee to them, as, a, as physical evidence that they were set apart as the people of God. That is what circumcision was for. It, it sealed them. It gave them a, 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 a guarantee, a, a physical reminder of the promises of God, the promises of God, and their ability as God's people to participate in those promises. It's a seal. And what seals us as believers? The Spirit. 
The Spirit seals us as believers. Not our obedience to the law, but the presence of God dwelling in us, purifying our hearts. We cannot purify our hearts by obeying God's commands in the law. Our hearts need to be purified by something outside of ourselves, by the Spirit of God dwelling in us, by God giving us a new heart. And that comes through faith in Christ, not circumcision. A robust understanding helps us not be easily deceived. Let me ask you something. In this, in this situation, we see false teaching as something that's adding to the gospel. So Jesus and blank saves you. What are you prone to add to the gospel? I know for me, I'm prone to add my, my obedience. Just, just kind of general obedience, right? Like, um, I'm prone to, to stake my worth and my identity in the tenacity of my pursuit of God rather than the identity that God has already given to me in Jesus. And, and the way this looks in my life practically is sometimes I get up in the morning and I like to read the Bible in the morning. That's just when I have my time uh, with the Lord and in prayer. I, I try to get up early and do that. And so um, there are many times when I'm kind of operating from this, this place where I'm putting more faith in my obedience, I begin to guilt myself into obedience. Right? How many of us in here, I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, how many of us cracked open our Bibles to read out of guilt? Somehow convincing ourselves that if we, if we read a couple of verses in the Scriptures that God will love us more today. It's silly when we say it, but in our minds we, we convince ourselves of this lie. Or what about this one? Maybe we've, we've, we've had a long day, busy day. Uh, I'm going to put Eric Johnson on blast because I sit across from the office, uh, or I, we share an office, and... Um, you know, he's got, he's got kids. I have one kid, so I, I pray for him regularly. So pray for Eric and Bree and their children. But like, like things are crazy in a, in a house with multiple kids. Uh, things are crazy for us with one, so I can't imagine like you, you multiply that out and like game on, right? But like things are busy, and so you, you lay down in your bed at night and you kind of, you know, you, if, you're, if you're married, you look to your spouse and you, you, know, you say goodnight and you kind of roll over on your pillow because, you know, real married folks don't actually face each other when they sleep. And, um, and uh, a thought pops in your head. I haven't prayed today. Just the craziness of the day got to you. You didn't pray. And so in that moment, you're motivated out of guilt to seek the Lord, convincing yourself that before you shut your eyes, God will love you more if you just say a few things to him before you go to sleep. What are we prone to add to the gospel. You see, a robust understanding of Jesus helps us not be deceived in these situations. It's very practical. It is. Because in the busyness of life, we're prone to rest in our identity that the Spirit gives us, and not our obedience to these commands. You see, it's out of our joy in the Lord that we are moved to obedience, not our guilt. Not convincing ourselves or believing the lie that God will love us more if we just do these things. Verse 4. So when they arrived in Jerusalem, right, they're on their way down to Jerusalem to kind of deal with this issue. They, they want to gather with other believers to wrestle with this truth. Is it circumcision or faith? Is it, is it faith in, in, in the law or is it just faith in Christ? What, what is it that actually saves us? Let's, let's clarify what we believe here. And so they, they need some help, right? So they go down to Jerusalem to the elders and the apostles there. So when they arrived, they were welcomed by the church, verse 4, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. 
But some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, so these are believers who used to be Pharisees. They're not just Pharisees. These are believers. These are Christians. Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. A robust understanding of Jesus unifies us over difficult issues of doctrine. It's a complex issue, right? I know, you know, we talk about circumcision, and we are so culturally removed from Jewish practices today in the year 2018 that this can get a little fuzzy for us. We might not, but in that, we, we might miss the significance of what's going on here. So take the debate and push it to the side for a minute. We have a doctrine issue. What actually saves us? How do we know that we are saved? How do we know? Many of us who have been around the church for a while have met arguing Christians, right? Christians who are so convinced that they are right in their stance of doctrine that they will take an ax to your head to prove you wrong, amen, right? Like we know this person. And the reason why I can say this so sharply is because that's me. I am prone to be that person, an arguing Christian. And in this way, I have missed the beauty of what godly discussion over the word is. You see, a robust understanding of Jesus unifies them, unifies us over difficult issues of doctrine. It's in clarifying what we actually believe, that we are unified together. They don't, they don't, they don't shy away from the argument. I love that. So often in the church, we are so we are so prone to be people pleasers that we're afraid to like debate the scriptures together. And, and let, me, let, me, let, me, let me tell you something. Arguing is not wrong. It's not wrong. But if we are arguing so that our opinion can be made known, we are wrong. You see, our, our purpose in arguing over the scriptures is not for you to agree with me or for me to agree with you. It's for us together in unity to agree with God. And so when we argue and we debate the truth, we say to the sources, to the word, let's figure out what this says and see how this impacts our life in unity together because you are in the faith and I am in the faith and as we wrestle these things together, guess what happens? We grow in our intimacy with one another. We grow in our intimacy with God. Our familiarity with the details of who God is grows. It gets bigger and guess what happens? Our faith is fortified in these conversations. I remember a few years ago, um, I heard the word theology for the first time, and it was in the context of a conversation with a person that I believed, um, I was wrong in this belief, but I, I had somehow convinced myself that this person loved theology far more than they did Jesus, and I was wrong. And so they were talking to me, and, and I just like took a step back, and I was like, wait a minute. I didn't need to know the word theology to get saved, right? Amen? Praise the Lord that we don't have to have everything figured out before he saves us. But in saving us, he exposes the truth. And so, as I'm, as I'm, as I'm you know, talking to this guy, I say, like, wait, 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 wait. I didn't need to know this. I have Jesus. That's good enough for me. I know that some of us have said that. I don't need theology. I don't need the details. I've got Christ. I'm good. I'm satisfied. But then he, he pressed me. I love I love brothers and sisters in the faith who press your conscience with good questions. 
Just gently expose the error in your thinking, not with a statement or a hammer or an axe to the head, but with a good, good, thoughtful question. He said this. He said, so you don't need theology. You've got Jesus, right? I said, yeah. He said, how do you know you have the right Jesus? How do you know? Because if faith in Christ alone is what saves you, how do you know you got the right Christ? How do you know you got the right Messiah? It rocked me. It shook me up. I didn't know how to respond. So I didn't respond. I just I, I sat and listened. Tim explained to me why the details are so important to us. These men of God, these apostles, these elders in Jerusalem gathered together because the details mattered. And it's in clarifying the details in unity over difficult in- issues of doctrine that the the community of faith is strengthened. Theology matters to all of us. Not just to me, because I, I, I get the, the joy of getting to stand up here and, and, and lift up the word to you, but for all of us. Theology matters. It matters because God matters. You see, because everybody who, who has devoted a thought in their life to God has done theology. Theology is the study of God, theos, God, ology, study. I was freaked out of any word that had anything to do with any ology because I was terrible at school. And so when this person told me about that, I'm like, no, 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 I can't do any of that. No, no, no. If you're thinking about God, you are doing theology. That's how broad that category is. And so it matters to us because God matters to us. We cannot separate these two things. And yet we cannot reduce theology to this like empty knowledge that doesn't lead to increased intimacy and experience. Theology is not something to be thought. It's something to be experienced and lived out. The study of the infinite creator of the universe is not something any of us can master. And yet it is the study of the creator of the universe that ends up mastering us. We are mastered by the scriptures. We do not master them. We do not become experts in the things of God. God takes residence in us and transforms us and shapes us and masters us so that we follow him. He stirs our affections for the things of God and compels us to follow him. The Lord masters us. We do not master him. And so if, 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 like me, you are tempted to think that you can master the things of God, we together must repent this morning to turn from that and ask the Lord to change our hearts so that these things do not lead to our pride but to our humility and worship. Verse 7. After they had, there had been much debate, so there's disagreement here, They're debating over these things. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us, Jews, and them, Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. A robust understanding of Jesus opens our eyes to see God working in the lives of people. 
Peter's awareness of what God was doing moved him to focus on the human heart. He didn't say, oh yeah, they got saved because they were circumcised. No, what did he say? That God made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles because I witnessed God cleanse their hearts by faith. God has opened Peter's eyes to have a perspective of what God is doing in the world. He sees God at work among the Gentiles, and so he knows this can't be right. They, they, they shouldn't have to be circumcised. There's no way because I've seen God give the Spirit to Gentiles who are not circumcised. He has saved them. He has sealed them, and they didn't need that. I saw it. I've witnessed it. And in fact, he, God has made a choice to reveal this truth through me because we saw Peter in Acts 10 interact with Cornelius. This is the event that he's referring to here, that a Roman soldier, not just a Roman soldier, but a Roman centurion in authority over many soldiers, somebody who in fact would have maybe even oppressed Jews as a Roman soldier, got saved, not by obedience to the law, but because God sealed him with the promise of his spirit. And so we see this benefit of a robust understanding of Christ opening our eyes to see God at work in the world and giving us a sensitivity to how the spirit is at work in the lives people. Verse 10. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks? Neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. This is Peter still talking here. On the contrary, we have been, we believe that we are saved through the same grace of the Lord Jesus, or we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. A robust understanding of Jesus gives us perspective of our own need. I love this. I love how, how Peter's explicit understanding of how God is at work, his desire to get into the details of how God is at work in the Gentiles, reminds him of his own need. You see, because what he does is he, he presses these people who are teaching that obedience to the law is necessary for salvation. He presses them with this. Why would God require of the Gentiles something that we haven't even been able to do ourselves? What a humbling statement. We can't obey the law. Why would we expect them to? And so God must be doing something here that doesn't require an obedience to the law. God must be doing something here where it's not rules that save, but the spirit and the grace of God that saves. And so Peter sees right here, we, we see this beautiful picture of how humility is a huge, huge, huge aspect of our understanding of Christ being robust. You see, what makes, what makes our knowledge of God robust is not the things that we know and the details that we know. It's that the details move us to worship and humility. I talked about this earlier. Many of us, when we study these things, we're prone to get prideful, thinking that we know more than others. The interesting thing is if our study of God makes us prideful, we are not studying God. We're missing God in the midst of our study. We're missing redemption in the midst of our study. Because if anything, every time we crack open our Bible, it should reveal the depth of our need and how we need to hold tightly to Christ for our lives. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent. So Peter's done talking. The whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles. So Peter shares his experience 
God is saving people who are not Jewish, not requiring them to get circumcised. Then Paul and Barnabas begin to share the stories of the first missionary journey. We talked about this last week. And guess what they're sharing? They're not sharing vague generalities of what God did among the Gentiles. No, no, no. They're getting very, very specific here. Luke is retelling the story. So what is here is just a summary of Paul and Barnabas' testimony. So it's, it's very safe for us to assume that Paul and Barnabas got into the details with eagerness. What I love here is there's, there's kind of two aspects of, of eagerness that we see. Because their robust understanding of Jesus makes them eager to see the lost become found. And so what happens here is the people are silent. The, the, I, I can imagine. Imagine if all of us just started arguing. Like what kind of commotion that would make, right? But then after hearing Peter speak, the assembly got silent on the edge of their seat, ready to hear what Paul and Barnabas had to say about God's salvation among the nations. They were eager to hear how God was taking the lost and making them found. But not only that, there's this eagerness to hear, to listen, but then an eagerness to tell of their own experiences. Paul and Barnabas share with eagerness the details of conversion. Let me ask you something. Do all the details of what God does in regenerating and in renewing the heart of the human person, do those details fascinate you? Or do they bore you? Do the details of conversion fascinate you? Do they put you on the edge of your seat? Do they excite you? Do they stir your affections for the Lord and for people? Or do they bore you? Do you see them as empty facts that mean absolutely nothing to you? Because the reality is, if, if the the details of conversion bore us, the problem is not God. The problem is not God. Scripture describes conversion as a new heart, the dead coming to life, dry bones coming to life, children of wrath becoming children of God, men who are declared enemies of God, brought into peace with God. The details of that process should fascinate us. Not bore us, because it's in the details that we see in eagerness for these things grow. And here's the deal. As, as, as we see the details unfold, as the picture of God in our lives gets progressively bigger, as we, as we see the fullness for who Christ is, our faith deepens, our confidence deepens because the one who we have faith in becomes more and more familiar to us, more and more real to us. It's in the details that we get this familiarity, this intimacy with God and it increases our faith, our confidence in him, our desire to know him, our hunger to pursue him. It changes the way that we approach the scriptures and life and people conversion should fascinate us. Verse 13. After they stopped speaking, James responded, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simeon, that's him referring to Peter, has reported how God first intervened to take from a Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this as it is written. And then he quotes from Amos and Isaiah, two Old Testament prophets. After these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. 
a robust understanding of Jesus moves us into agreement with the word. We talked about this earlier when we talked about how it unifies us over difficult issues of doctrine, but it brings us into agreement with the word. Where does James go to affirm the things that Paul and Barnabas are talking about and the things that Peter is talking about? He goes to the Old Testament. He goes to the word. He says God has promised to to reserve from the Gentiles, to, to choose out of the Gentiles people for himself, to say they are mine. He goes to the Old Testament to prove that. He goes to the scriptures to prove that. And so James is calling the assembly of people back into agreement with the word of God, saying these are not just things that we experience. These are also truths that have been laid out clearly in God's word. And so we must move and come into agreement with that. Our understanding of Jesus grows robust and full as our hearts and our desires and our, and our lives and our pursuits begin to come more and more and more into agreement with God's word. Verse 19, here's the resolution. Therefore, so in light of this truth, in light of faith in Christ alone being the only thing that can save us, Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. So the truth's been established. Faith in Christ alone is what saves you, not circumcision. So now the assembly is faced with a problem. How are we supposed to guide the Gentile believers who are living in communities where this false teaching is running rampant? How are we to guide them in the truth? How are they to respond to this false teaching in the context of their communities? The key to this question is in verse 21. You see, because it's very interesting to me, and even as I read this, I I found it fascinating that they're like, well, faith in Christ saves you, not obedience to the law, but then they give the Gentiles commands to watch their diet. What's going on here? They say the law doesn't save, but then they tell them, hey, watch your diet because the law commands to watch your diet. It's very interesting. The key to this is in verse 21. Look at it. Moses has had those, in, had those who proclaim him in every city. So basically what they're saying is we need to tell the Gentiles to do this thing because Moses, for years, Moses has had people in synagogues proclaiming Judaism in the cities all around the world. Translation, there are Jews all over the place. Where Gentiles are being saved, there are most likely Jews being saved. And so what we need to do is we need to guard the Jews and direct the Gentiles. Now, how how is this working? You see, James understands, because of his robust understanding of Jesus, he understands that people will not be so quick to abandon their traditions and embrace the freedom offered in the gospel. People will not be so so quick to abandon their traditions. And so James's robust understanding of Jesus helps him give wisdom to the uninformed. Just like our robust understanding of Jesus helps us give wisdom to the uninformed. The Jews are not going to be quick to abandon the Old Testament practices of a kosher diet. The Gentiles, however, have no idea what a kosher diet is. No clue. 
And so James gives them this wisdom here because this is what would have happened. Think about community. Think of how the life of the church works here for a minute, right? Like we're over, we, we should be in one another's homes often, right? Which means we're gonna be eating together, right? So, so if, if, and this is just a weird way to say it, but so if you, if, if you come over to my house and we cook something for you and you're a vegetarian and you're a vegetarian because somehow you've convinced your conscience that eating meat is sinful, it's not, amen, I love pork, thank the Lord, but, but somehow you cannot reconcile eating meat in a way that's honoring to God. Another way you could look at it is, is alcohol. Some people believe that alcohol is sinful. Some people cannot, cannot believe that we can consume alcohol in a way that's, that's honoring to God. Now, if you came over to my house and you were one of these people, and we were, we were sitting down to eat, and the only thing I had to drink in my house was beer and wine, What compassion is there in that hospitality? That's foolish. Or if you're a vegetarian and we were having steak for dinner, I would not be guarding your conscience and preserving our community. That would have immediately done what? It would have created division. Because you would have convinced yourself that what I was doing was sinful. And in that moment, guess what? You would be right. Because I would not be protecting and guarding your conscience. I would not be doing hospitality in a way that cares for you. And so for Gentiles, their diet was seen as repulsive to the Jews. And so they gave them these dietary commands to say, we need to guard the unity of the church. That's far more important than the freedoms you have in the gospel. It's far more important. So there's, there's deep wisdom here. In verses 22 through 29, we see a letter that the council responds to. We're not going to read that this morning. All it does is kind of rehash what we've read about the council. It summarizes what happened at the council, and it, it urges Gentiles to obey these four things, right? Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. And what that means is that pagan cultures would sacrifice animals in their temple, and then they would sell them in the marketplace. And so don't eat food that's being sold in the marketplace that was used in a pagan temple to be sacrificed to idols. Why? Because Jews would see that as wrong. And you need to protect your weaker brothers and sisters who, who do not understand fully the freedoms they have in Christ. The second thing, sexual immorality. Avoid sexual immorality. Why? Because many Gentile believers would have actually worshipped false gods through sexual immorality. In this culture in the first century, many Gentiles had temples of prostitution. And they would do what you do in a temple of prostitution in worship to gods, false gods gods. And so the reason why they pressed this command, this is the only sin in these four commands, to avoid sexual immorality. The only reason why they pressed that home is because in wisdom, they needed to make sure the Jews put a divide between their old way of life and their new way of life. The old ways that they would worship in this world and the new ways that God has called them to worship. Because you and I are prone to go back to the things we struggled with. And then not eat animals that have been strangled, another dietary command, as well as not eating food that has, hasn't had blood drained out of it. A robust understanding of Jesus gives us compassion for our weaker brothers and sisters. We guard one another for the unity of the church because our unity in the family of God is far more important than the freedoms that we have in the gospel. And so we protect that. We protect that. This false teaching unsettled Gentiles because it, it disrupted the security they had in the gospel because it said that, that the Holy Spirit wasn't enough. You needed to get circumcised. 
And so in compassion, the Council of Jerusalem wrote them this letter to guide them in wisdom on how to respond to this. But then also in compassion, the Gentiles respond to their weaker Jewish brothers and sisters by guarding their conscience for the sake of unity. We do not compromise unity under the umbrella of Christian liberty and freedom. We preserve unity first, and then we operate in the liberties that we have in Christ. Verse 30, this is the the last thing I got for you today. So they were sent off, the council sends them off, and they went down to Antioch, and after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. I love that. I love that the Gentile believers, new believers, would have heard these four commands and considered them an encouragement to be celebrated. To them, this command of compassion toward their Jewish brothers and sisters through surrendering some of their freedoms led them to rejoice. A robust understanding of Jesus encourages us to lay down our lives with joy. The reward of laying aside their freedoms for the sake of unity was far greater. And so that's what they celebrated. That's what they celebrated. So I want to ask you, what, what are you willing to lay down for the sake of unity here? Because if you're a member of this church, you are called here to do what? The ministry of the body. You are called to serve here. You are called to, to use this body as an opportunity for you to minister and encourage other brothers and sisters in the faith, as an opportunity to be encouraged yourself and prayed for. You have something to contribute here. In order for you to do that, it will require you to lay down your life in some way for the sake of unity, for the sake of the gospel. And so in what way are you willing to lay down your life for the sake of unity here? According to the scriptures, you and I are the bride, right? We're the bride of Christ. And so like a bride, we we pursue this intimate knowledge of the bridegroom, of Jesus, because we want to grow in intimacy with him. On August 30th, 2014, I stood right here and looked my, my wife in the eyes and committed to cherish her, to honor her, to be faithful to her. I had no idea what I was saying. Amen? No clue. I had no idea what I was committing to. Didn't know what I was signing up for. Here's the deal. I looked into the eyes of my wife, and I had no idea how little I knew this person I was about to spend my life with. I had no idea that I had no idea. There are many people in here who believe that the most exciting part of marriage is the wedding. Let me say that again. There are many people in here who believe that the most exciting part of marriage is the wedding. And then after the wedding, it just kind of tapers off. Isn't that a tragedy? I mean, what good is the commitment of marriage if it doesn't increase in intimacy rather than decrease in intimacy? Look, if we believe that, we're missing out on the wealth and the reward of pursuing lifelong intimacy together. Through what? 
through getting to know the details of each other, right? And growing in our affection in that way. Many of you believe that the most exciting part of your union with Christ was the moment you got saved. Let me say that again. Many of you believe that the most exciting part, the most invigorating part, the most life-giving part, the most joyful part of your life in Christ was the moment you got saved. And then you've convinced yourself that after that, there's just this tapering down of intimacy. But there's wealth and reward. Wealth and reward in a growing understanding of Jesus and in intimacy with our Creator through a robust understanding and a pursuit of that in the gospel by the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. There is intimacy to be had here with Jesus. And so how might we encourage one another toward that robust understanding that affects the whole person, not just the head, but the head, the heart, the experiences, all of that? How might we unify over difficult things? How might we come together and and encourage one another? Keep pursuing Christ. Keep growing in the wisdom and knowledge of God. Keep understanding the breadth and the width and the height and the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we might be filled with the fullness of God. How might we help each other do that? Something to think about today, tomorrow, this week. That's the goal. How might we encourage one another to get there? This morning as we close, I want to celebrate the vast riches of what is offered to us in Jesus through taking communion together. As we pass the elements out, make sure you take the two cups stacked together. Um, Both are containing the bread and the juice. Make sure you take them both. And here's the deal. If you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, please just just pass the elements by. No No one will judge you. This is an opportunity for the body of Christ to to examine ourselves. And if you're not in Christ, examine yourself as well. And this is the most important part. The reason we examine ourselves is because Scripture tells us if we take communion in an unworthy manner, we drink the very wrath and judgment of God upon ourselves. Because in drinking communion, we are remembering the work of Christ. And if we do not believe in that work, then we are, we are drinking the condemnation of God upon ourselves. And so examine yourself. If there's somebody in here that you have, you, have, you have beef with, reconcile before taking communion. If there is sin in your life, spend that time confessing that to God. But don't forget that communion is not something to be mourned. Communion is something to be celebrated because we are free in Christ. So as you take communion, reflect on the mercy of God that you received and praise him for he is worthy. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, gave thanks and took bread. And when he broke it, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. God, you are supreme, reigning over all things, guiding us to worship in spirit and in truth. You are sovereign, you are mighty, you are in control. Lord, there's absolutely nothing I can say this morning that would convince us to hunger for a robust understanding of Christ. And so, God, we need you. We need your spirit to make us hunger for Christ and a greater understanding of who he is so that our intimacy with you would strengthen, so that our faith would strengthen, so that our our love for you and all that you have done would strengthen. Lord, remind us of your great and precious promises that those would motivate us and compel us to pursue you. Thank you. Thank you for your word. You are not obligated to reveal yourself to us, and yet you chose to. We love you. Amen.